Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas. High atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network Headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill. Today's Friday. It's actually July 15, 2011. But Friday's the important thing because you know what happens on Friday. It's your show. This is where you call in, you pick your phone up, you match some numbers, you go 866-65-THINK. Don't do that now because it's not a live show, it's a podcast, but you do that and within, I'd say, two to three weeks, you should expect to hear yourself on the air if you follow some rules. Know what you're calling about when you pick the phone up, have a plan for what you're going to say, get to the point click quickly because you only get two minutes. Don't call from the back of a motorcycle operating a weed eater or a chainsaw or driving down the road in a vehicle with the windows down. Uh, if you have background noise and it's too much to be heard, I will not put you on the air. Uh, occasionally, some of you guys call in from cell phones, and I hear, Hi, Jack, uh, I would... Uh, 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 and I was wondering if you could, uh, uh, well, that doesn't work either. So if you don't hear yourself after about a month, I would suggest you make your call again. Something's probably gone wrong. I do try to get everybody's calls on the air. I don't get 100% of them on the air. Even 100, I don't even get 100% of them on the air that, uh, that come through clearly. The volume's too high. But this is a much better way to get your voice heard, your, your tip given out, your question, uh, than the, the emails. I get so many more emails and calls. Your odds of being on the air within three weeks, if you do a good call, a clear and understandable call, I'd say about 90% of the time you should hear yourself within three weeks to a month. All right, before we take your calls, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said ShelfReliance, like a shelf you put stuff on, not self-reliance like you, the individual. Why? Well, because ShelfReliance specializes in innovative food storage systems that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat, uh, such as their Harvest 72 storage rack which is kind of the Cadillac of the things that they offer, allowing you to store over 500 to 600 cans, depending on their sizes, in a relatively small footprint. And the best part is every time you bring a new can in, you're going to be putting it to the back of the stack, and every time you pull a can out, you're going to be pulling the one that's there, been there the longest. That way you actually utilize the stuff that you're storing for your emergency needs on a daily basis. And that's really special. Additionally, uh, they, uh, they are the providers of the Thrive brand of long-term storage food, some of the best tasting stuff uh, that I've ever tasted. Some of the stuff they sent me is just amazing. You need to try that out, and I'll tell you, it's a little bit easier to get your hands on uh, right now than some of the shortfalls that they're experiencing with things like Mountain House. So check out ShelfReliance.com today. Next up today is Jeff the Berkey Guy. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? You're going to get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. And, you know, the reason that's important, we have five primary survival needs. Food, water, shelter, uh, energy, and security. The one you'll die the quickest without is water. 
And you need to make sure you have fresh, clean, drinkable water. That includes making the water that comes out of uh, you, you know your municipal water supply on day-to-day safer to drink and better tasting by removing certain things like fluoride uh, and chlorine. It also means having a way to purify water if we ever get into a situation where the water is simply not safe at all. And I'm talking about having you know viruses and bacteria and things like that in it due to a natural disaster or other catastrophe. So with the Berkey system, it's the most cost-effective way I know to make sure your water meets all of those criteria. And you know what? They're stainless steel and they look really good wherever you keep them in your home or office. Uh, next up, remember to connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the primary social media outlets that I use to stay in touch with the audience. You know, Also consider joining our forum. It's a great way to connect with other preppers. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. And remember, if you are military, law enforcement, or Peace Corps active due to your prior service, you do qualify for a service discount. Email me before you join at jack at the survivalpodcast.com and I will share with you the discount code, uh, which will provide you a discount on any membership you select, including on the recurring charges. Um, before we get into your calls, I have to do an update. I had planned Operation Phone Smackdown for these ass clowns up in Michigan, Oak, Oak, Oak Lawn or Oak Park, Michigan, whatever it is. Uh, that was going to be today, and then we put it off because uh, Oak Park, Michigan is a bunch of idiots can't balance their books, and their city is closed. Their city departments are closed on Fridays. And even though they're, they have to close on Fridays for budget cuts because they're idiots, they had time to go out and harass this lady who had a front yard vegetable garden. Well, yesterday she posted on her blog that the charges have been dropped. They're still being harassed about a dog license issue where they did license both of their dogs. Uh, they're set on a court date to appear for that, but I think that's something we let that. The court should... The court's not going to make a deal out of it. I don't expect them to because the issue's already been resolved. It just seems like this ass clown took so much heat, he's still trying to give them a little bit of a, of a problem. But it seems like they've backed off. Here's the issue, though. According to their blog, they haven't been found not guilty. No one's actually told them this is okay. This The current charges have been dropped. So this could come back up. So my view is this is not a time to launch an attack on these people with, with public complaints because you don't complain about something when somebody's already giving you what you want. But we stay vigilant. We watch this. I need all of you guys uh, out there to stay in touch with this, this family through their blog. I'll put a link to it today. And if this comes back up, then we hit them and we hit them fast and we let them know the eyes of the nation are on them. Um, Again, like I said yesterday, that type of activism is not something I usually try to drum up in this audience. That's not the purpose of this show. But there are points when liberty have been trampled onto a certain level that if you don't speak up, who's going to? And this is one of those. So let's stay vigilant on this. Let's watch for other encroachments of liberty like this. And when something's gross enough in its action, let us as a community rise together and do something about it. Now, with that said, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack. Adam from Boston again. One more comment about the uh, going to college. Uh, do you remember the movie Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield uh, when he was in that class about economics and the teacher had one point of view and he said, well, yeah, but you got to grease this guy and you got to do this thing and you got to do that thing. That's exactly what it is. The teachers that I've experienced in undergrad and graduate school, they're so into that whole academic culture. They lost touch with reality about how things are actually supposed to get done. So again, to reemphasize, if you want to get ahead, regardless of what it is, you got to go out and do the goddamn work, and you got to work your ass off. If you're just going to go to school and hope that that's going to land you an awesome job, you're sorely mistaken. Thanks. 
Well, it's a great call, and it's a great old movie from the 80s. Uh, it's one of my uh, favorite old kind of, you know, uh, uh, merging of like real concepts and kind of slapstick comedy. And uh, before I comment on that call, though, uh, because it's one of my favorites, it's actually one of the uh, movies that I have in iTunes. Uh, the, the scene that, that the caller's referencing there lasts about, oh, two minutes. Let me go ahead and play that for you. This will be a great little piece of Friday comedy with some realism put in it. Some people, we've got a lot to cover and time is short. So rather than waste your time this semester with a lot of useless theories, we're going to jump right in with both feet and create a fictional company from the ground up. We'll construct our physical plant. We'll set up an efficient administrative and executive structure. Then we'll manufacture our product and market it. I think you'll find it very interesting and a lot of fun. So let's start by looking at construction costs of our new factory. Uh, what's the product? That is immaterial for the purposes of our discussion here. But if it makes you happy... Let's say we're making tape recorders. Tape recorders? Are you kidding? The Japs will kill us on a labor course. Okay, fine. Then let's just say they're widgets. What's a widget? It's a fictional product. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Tell that to the bank. Take it know? easy. Take it easy. It's the first day, you know. On the board. You will see a cost analysis for construction of a 30,000 square foot facility, which will encompass both factory and office space, and is fully serviced by all utilities, a railroad spur line, and a four-bay shipping dock. Oh, hold it. Why, Bill? Hey, you're better off leasing it a buck and a quarter, a buck and a half a square foot. Take your down payment and put it into CDs, or something else you can roll over every couple of months. Thank you, Mr. Mellon. But we'll be concentrating on finance a little later in the term. For the time being, let's just concentrate on the construction figures, shall we? You will see the final bottom line requires the factoring in of not just the material and construction costs, but also the architect's fees and the costs of land servicing. Oh, you left out a bunch of stuff. Oh, really? Like what, for instance? Well, first of all, you're going to have to grease the local politicians for the sudden zoning problems that always come up. That is the kickbacks to the carpenters. And if you plan on using any cement in this building, I'm sure the team should like to have a little chat with you. And that'll cost you. Oh, and don't forget a little something for the building inspectors. Then there's a long-term cost, such as waste disposal. I don't know if you're familiar with who runs that business, but I assure you it's not the Boy Scouts. That'll be quite enough, Mr. Mellon. Maybe bribes and kickbacks and mafia payoffs are how you do business. But they are not part of the legitimate business world. And they're certainly not part of anything I'm teaching in this class. Do I make myself clear? Sorry, just trying to help, that's all. Now, notwithstanding Mr. Mellon's input, the next question for us is where to build our factory. How about Fantasyland? <laughs> Now, do I think that we should start teaching our college students that if you're going to be in business, you need to learn how to pay off politicians and teamsters? No. No, but I do think there's a lot to be learned there and a lot to be, um, uh, you know, there is some humor there, but there's a lot of reality there. That people that live in an academic environment only lose complete touch with the real world. They lose complete touch with concepts like 
at being exceptional because of what you do instead of what you think. They lose concepts such as basic competitiveness other than who gets an A and who gets a B. And I think that that's a big problem with a lot of our educational system today, that there's not enough real-world activity. Now, to be fair, I think some schools are actually going out of their way to bring more real-world uh, concepts into the classroom. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time kind of beating up the, the higher education system, so I want to reiterate here that I don't think college is a bad thing. I don't think all colleges suck. I don't think all college graduates are, 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 are people that were ripped off. But I do think that about half of the people there don't belong there. And this kind of reiterates part of the problem, that a lot of these young kids go to school because they were always told to go to school. Their parents told them to go to school. Their teacher told them to go to school. You know, the president comes on TV and tells them to go to college. Every little sitcom they watch, every kid that's an athlete thinks they're going to be a rock star or whatever, always fails and ends up realizing he needs to go to college. Every single thing in our society today is the, that, that touches this issue is designed to market a single message. Everybody should go all the time, no matter what, and there's never a time when not going is better than going. And, and that's just stupid because it's applying a one-size-fits-all solution to something that's very, very personal, how you're going to live the rest of your life and how you're going to earn your living. Um, there are some good places out there. I know like the, uh, the MBA program at SMU. Uh, that program's probably worth the cost for the connections you'll make while you're there. Uh, so there are some good things out there. I don't want you to see it all as wrong, but uh, there are a lot of people in academia that are very much like the professor you heard in this little clip. If you have not seen Back to School and you want a nice little comedy to sit back and kick back to um, over the weekend, you might want to pick this one up on iTunes. I think it's like $4.95 or something because it's an old movie. Probably not appropriate for the youngest of your children, though. Let's go ahead and take another call. Actually, this one's not another call. I've got for you now uh, a media piece I want you to hear. This is by an analyst uh, you're going to hear named Meredith Whitney on how bad the situation for the states are. Meredith is a person who went out quite a, on a limb and said that we would see major defaults in the municipal bond market soon. Um, and maybe her timeline won't be right. And the media, the media is la launching an all-out blitz against this lady. Uh, there's an article on Bloomberg from yesterday called Meredith Whitney Loses Credibility. To me, this lady's not lost an ounce of credibility. Uh, just because, so if you see somebody treading water in a pool, and you know that the walls of that pool are 100 feet tall and greased, you can say with certainty, sooner or later, that person's going to get tired, die, and, and, and drown. You know that's going to happen. Now, if you say that and you say, I think this person can maybe hold off for another six hours and seven hours later they're still treading water, to me you haven't lost credibility, your timeline's off. Sooner or later that person's going to drown. That's where I feel the states are. I'm going to provide a link to the uh, blog post where this video I'm about to play for you is, and then I'm going to provide a link to you on Bloomberg where you can see kind of the witch hunt that's going out against Meredith Whitney. I want you to remember this though, as you listen to this and you listen to my comments after this video. When the banks were defaulting in early 2008, or late 2007, people like Meredith Whitney were saying in, in that space, not her at the time, but the people sounding the same type of alarm, major bank defaults are coming. The banks are going to fail. The bank, and everybody said they're nuts, they're loons, what, you just guys go away, this is no big deal, it's just a small local bank, this stuff happens all the time, defaults at banks are actually down, not up, yada, 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 and next thing you know, Bear Stearns, the whole financial sector implodes, Bank of America, all the big banks need bailouts, 
$700 billion gets pumped in, $2 trillion gets pumped in on the back end to prop everything up, and everybody says, see, it was fine. Well, it wasn't fine. It was what precipitated this entire economic recession that we're still in the middle of. So when you, I want you to look at both sides of this issue as we move forward. And I want you to follow both the witch hunt against this lady and what she's actually saying. And I want you to take and analyze these things for yourself. So without further ado, let me play for you this clip, uh, this interview on CNN Money with Meredith Whitney. And you tell me whether or not this lady knows what's going on. So, Meredith, your latest State of the States report, it looks at 25 of the biggest states, and what you, you essentially conclude is that their deficits are, are much larger than the official numbers show. So the situation is much worse than everyone thinks it is. Well, not only did we look at 25 states, but we also took a much more comprehensive look at the finances in general of the states, um, adding on analysis of legislative experience, uh, expediency, adding on in-depth and un, uh, uh, unprecedented analysis of the off-balance sheet liabilities. Um, these are 09010 pension obligations, OPEB, which is other pension, uh, other post-employment uh, benefits. Um, these have equal weighting and equal claim to the tax receipts of a state as government or, or, or a general obligation bonds. So all of this add in, like the pension funds and the OPEB liabilities are 75% of the total debt of the states. Uh, general obligation bonds are only 25% of the states. So if you look at the totality, totality of it, the debt situation is far worse. Well, what state uh, to you stands out looking at these 25 now, half of, half of the United States, um, is in the worst situation, especially when it comes to those off-balance sheet liabilities, because those are numbers that haven't been accounted for until recently. Right. Well, what has happened, so the root of all this is states have been spending at least uh, two times what their tax receipts have been for a, over a decade. And in some cases, they've been spending three times their and tax receipts. And through the receipts. recession. And through the recession. So... Uh, how do they do this? They're supposed to have, you know, 49 states are supposed to report balanced budgets. What they've been doing is either they've been looting rainy day funds or they have been under, you know, issuing government uh, uh, general obligation debt or they've been raiding their pension funds. And by raiding their pension funds, you just kick the can of debt obligation uh, to future generations, effectively generational robbery. To your question, who looks the worst? Mm -hmm. New Jersey looks the worst because they've been doing it for the longest. So they've been New underfunding Jersey. their pension for the longest. Less than a year ago, you came out with the first report with 15 states, now we have 25. How much worse has the situation gotten, and has it improved in any state? When we uh, published on 15 states, uh, we just took uh, the off-balance sheet liabilities as is. And so we took uh, 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 existing numbers. They were 2008 numbers. Since that time, we, had, uh, we updated those numbers, and this was really yeoman's work, 2009-2010. Um, so unfunded pensions grew by 50%. In one year's time. In one year. One year's time. So the, this is sort of an uncontrollable, out out of control problem at this time. When you look at at, at, at underfunded and unfunded pensions. Right. So, so is that what has to change? Is that what has to go in these states? I think there are a lot of things that have to change. There's going to have to be concessions on all sides. Look, there already have been. You've had uh, state employees take concessions. You've, you know, the, the biggest issue is you've had taxpayers take. The, the heaviest concessions, which is their taxes have either gone up and had this you know, reduced social services, or their taxes have stayed the same and they've had reduced social services. They're, they're paying equal or more for less. Is, it, is this a new reality? I mean, is this what people are going to have to 
to swallow that pill for the next, say, decade to, to get the books back in order? Uh, there's no doubt about it because what you've had is, look, the consumer has done, well, corporates have done a great job of delevering, and corporates now are in great a great position. Uh, consumers have are in the process of delevering. The states have not delevered. In fact, state spending has grown over 30, in excess of 35% what consumer spending has grown for the last decade. So people talk about reckless U.S. consumers. The states have been far more reckless. So it's an issue of they've got to get their um, their houses in order. And it's very easy for someone to move from New Jersey to Pennsylvania right. um, because of tax uh, uh, tax favorability. Uh, mobi- social mobility is, is much easier, and that's the real risk. So you have the risk of state arbitrage. Let's talk about that. It's a very interesting point, state arbitrage, essentially saying, you know, people will leave states that are already in, in a bad position financially and go to other states that are, say, more business-friendly, a Florida, a Texas, for example, and that just makes the situation spiral and get worse. Right. So let's look at, uh, as an example, let's look at uh, California. You have businesses that are headquartered there that are building facilities outside the state. Um, a state like Washington, you're getting Boeing trying to build more f- a, a new f- uh, facility in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. You have you know, Florida as an example. Florida has been hit so hard by real estate. You have population migration outside of, uh, you know, moving outside of Florida. What that means is the revenues that were supposed to be supporting these projects fall even further, and taxes then have to rise even further. So you have the, the, the group of people who are your deepest tax base leave. You're stuck with a group of people who have a lower tax, you know, uh, capability or, or, or uh, wherewithal, and so you've got less supporting more. Last year, you predicted that hundreds of billions uh, of defaults is what we'd see in muni bonds over the next five years. Does this evidence from this report support that theory more? Do you still believe that that's the case, hundreds of billions? I think the number is going to be really big. I think that um, th- that was what it looked like to me at the time, and things have gotten worse. I'm not saying that the number will get worse. It's just there is not a lot, lot of optionality for these states. Too much leverage was put into the system that cannot support the leverage anymore. Well, I think she's dead on, and there's a couple observations I'd like to make along with that. Um, number one, she starts about state arbitrage. Actually, what that is is a republic in action. The entire concept of setting up the United States as a united collective body of states in a federation was exactly that. If one state did something stupid for long enough and another state did the opposite of it and provided a better environment for citizens, citizens being free to move from one to the other, unlike being, you know, like you can't just go to Mexico and just hang out and do whatever you want or go to Canada. There's all these procedures you have to go through and immigration and all. The fact that you could just pick up in Pennsylvania, move to Florida, pick up in Florida, move to Texas, pick up in Texas, move to Arkansas, pick up in Arkansas, move to Washington, and do whatever you want, set up your business wherever you want, live in one state, run your business in another state, do whatever you wanted with commerce, was designed to make states compete with better ideas, better business environments, and do a better job overall of serving their citizens. And it's why the greater majority of powers in the Constitution were left to the states and collectively to the people, with the people being the most sovereign of any individual entity. You, the individual, are the most sovereign thing on U.S. soil. From you, that moves to then a state and then to a nation. So the sovereignty in the nation lies in the sovereignty of the individual. That's how a federal republic works. She's not telling you that because she's not getting political about it. 
But what she's saying is a real problem for these states that are on the cusp of bankruptcy. If you screw your people long enough, if you tax them hard enough, if you piss them off enough, and if you start to have your services implode upon themselves to where you can't provide the basic services that people expect from their state and city governments anymore, they'll say the hell with this and they'll leave. And she's right. The first people to leave are not going to be the people on welfare. They don't really care. They're not going to be the people working a middle-class job that can't afford to leave because they can't sell their house. They're going to be the captains of industry, the business people, the entrepreneurs, the internet entrepreneurs. You know how hard it was for me to move from Texas to Arkansas? It wasn't. There was at, The only thing I had to do was put up my house for sale and get it ready. That was it. That was absolutely it. If I didn't make a dollar on the sale of my house and there was enough of a compelling reason for me to move from one state to the other, and I did it because I just wanted to. Hey, this isn't factor, but my point is how simple it is. Why? I run my own business. You run your own business, you don't give a damn what state you live in from a standpoint of other than what do I want out of that state and what does that state give me back? And there's a harsh reality that's going to come to a head here. You heard her get a little bit timid at the end of that interview, and if I were Meredith right now, I would be lashing out on these people saying, look, exactly what I told you in the beginning. They're treading water. The walls are 100 feet high and coated with grease. They're not going to get out. They have to go down. It's just a matter of how long they can play this game. How long can they keep borrowing you know, Peter to pay Paul? Because that's all that they're doing. And that's what she was saying in this. So I want you to, again, I want you to take in what you just heard. I'll put a link to where that is so you can watch it again if you'd like to. You can read the blog post about it on the person's blog where I found it. And then I also want you to read this hack piece, is what I consider it, on Bloomberg, about how she's so wrong and she's losing credibility and everything. And then I want you to think about this, the current state of the state governments. And the reason I want you to do this analysis and this critical thinking, you know, it's not just because it's Friday and you call the think line today, it's because it's important that you start developing this as a skill set. I talk so much about skill sets on the Survival Podcast. You know, whether it's building a, a figure four dead drop trap, uh, or whether it's learning to grow your own food or learning how to fix things around your home instead of relying on, you know, quote, a guy, unquote, to do it for you. But critical thinking is a skill set that's really lacking in America today. And we started out talking about the higher education system. Uh, and the type of critical thinking there is not always the type of critical thinking you actually need. So examine this one and think about it over the weekend. I'd love to hear your comments in the comment section on this. What do you think of Meredith Whitney? And what do you think about the concept that she's losing credibility in response to what she just said here? Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Carson from Canada here. Just heard on the uh, news this morning that OPEC couldn't uh, couldn't reach an agreement on increased oil output. I'm not going to draw any solid conclusions, but I have a pretty strong suspicion that you combine that with the fact that we now know that Saudi Arabia can't just turn up the oil production like they've claimed for years that they can. And I'm starting to wonder what's happening there. I think being in an oil town, I might be in just the right place. Hope you have a great day. Bye. Well, Carson, I don't know if you're in the right place or not. You'll have to determine that for yourself. I always say that where we live and how we live is our individual choices, and we should put redundancy into that so we can keep doing it as best we can no matter what happens. But you bring up an interesting point. This call is about three weeks old, so that decision uh, is kind of old news at this point, but it really ain't changed anything. Um, Obama, of course, released the strategic reserves in response to this, which I thought was really stupid. 
Um, it really didn't do anything to the price of oil six ways from Sunday. And strategic reserves are supposed to be for our strategic needs, like in a time of, uh, you know, like war uh, or something like that. Um, so maybe rotating them might not be a bad idea, but releasing them is really stupid. Um, it, it just is. And it, don't you take that to be political if you want. I wouldn't care. If Ron Paul was president and did that, I would say it was a stupid move, because this is a stupid move, and I, I love Ron Paul. I don't think he would, but th that's just an example there to make sure you understand it's not political. I don't know if this is actually because Saudi Arabia can't just turn up production, uh, and we do know that. We know that from the WikiLeaks cables. You know, the things where, we need to kill Julian Assange, and we need to kill this private, and all this other nonsense, you know, um, about how, you know, people were compromised in operations and all. But when you ask people, okay, what operation was compromised? Who's undercover uh, operation? Operation was blown by the WikiLeaks. Uh, and they're always like, uh, well, uh, there were some. Well, who? And they don't know because, well, there's not. It's not the kind of information was released. But one thing released was uh, a letter from the chief geologist for the Saudi government to our government saying, yeah, you know how we said we could just turn up production anytime we want to? Well, several of our oil fields are in, in, in decline and we can't. So that is true. Carson's right about that. So let's say that everybody thought you could do something and wanted you to do something and you couldn't do it and you wanted to keep maintaining the illusion that you could do it. How do you do that? You say, well, I'm not going to. Right? So when somebody says, well, you know, why don't you do this? And you just go, well, I don't feel like it right now. Uh, that can mean you really don't feel like it. You really don't want to. You have ulterior motives. Or it can mean you can't. We'll have to wait and see how this one plays itself out. Just because that cable went out doesn't mean there's not still an ass load of oil in Saudi Arabia. That's just a fundamental reality there. Um, but there ain't as much as they've been telling us. And what I'm wondering is not so much how quickly the world will see a total Pico oil situation, but how quickly we'll start to see certain strategic areas that we thought we could depend on go through individual peak oil cycles and how many of those it will take together to put us into a global peak oil situation. We could be looking at five years. We could be looking at 25 years. I don't know. We do know it's a finite resource. There's only so much of it there. We can only take so much out. And as we take the easy out, all that's left is the hard. The hard takes more money, more time, more energy, more effort. So it's something we need to keep an eye on. Good call, Carson. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, it's Ray from Kentucky again. I just wanted to send out a couple thank yous and uh, cue the community in on a resource that may be underplayed. Uh, came home yesterday, had a young rabbit that had suffered a heat stroke, went to the forum, made a post. Uh, didn't really receive a, a timely response, so I was looking for another option. Found the chat tab on the site. Went in there, lo and behold, there's a... Uh, there's a lady with a two and a half decades of experience. You know, that may not be always be the case when you go there, but uh, it really helped me out. She stayed on the line uh, for about nine hours right there at my disposal. So, I mean, I uh, can't thank her enough. That's Cedar and Sister Wolf from the forum. And I must have thanked them at least a dozen times, but I just want to get on here and, and put that out there. Also, Jack, thank you for making all this resource available in the first place. I uh, love what you do, love the show. Uh, thank you. That's all for me. You know, I always talk about the forum, and I almost never mention the chat room. There is a chat room at the forum where you can talk to other members of the community, you know, in real time, live, in, in group situations. And there's a lot of great stuff that's exchanged there. So uh, that's that's a, a tip, folks. If you are ever on the forum and you want to really get kind of more of a conversational thing going on, more real time thing going on, click on the chat tab. 
And, uh, you know, just be polite and nice to people when you're in there. And uh, we don't really allow a lot of uh, heavy-duty debating to go on there. It's real over an information-sharing chat room is what it's designed to be. But check it out. And I, I, it is amazing to me how much effort some members of this community will put into helping other members of this community just because. Um, it's a blessing beyond words. As far as thanking me for making the resources available, I, I, I have to turn that around and say to the community, thank you for making such great use of the resources and doing so much with them. You know, I don't use all of the, my own community resources. I don't spend a lot of time in the chat room. I do it every once in a while. There's only so much that any one person can do in places where one person can be involved. But it seems like in this community, there's enough people that love the chat room. They've made it valuable. There's enough people that love the forum. They make it valuable. There's enough people that love the Facebook stuff, they make it valuable. There's enough people who love the podcast and share it. That spreads the overall message. So uh, to everybody out there in the community that's ever shared this show or participated in this community in any way, shape, or form, let me just pause and, and say something I should say more often. Thank you for what you do. And uh, caller, thank you for such a great call and recommending that resource. Uh, you know, Shame on me for not recommending it more. So thanks for, uh, for having my six there. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, Jack. A little frugality tip here. Uh, regarding tech support. seems like in this day and age, uh, many companies no longer really like to stand by their products. Um, the other day I had a router, which an update was posted for, so it kept checking and going into the update mode, but was failing to be able to download the update from the company's website. I called and was informed that my, you know, five-month-old router was not under technical support anymore because technical support was only for 90 days and it was quite frustrating um, but my router was under one year warranty so I said I called them back and said okay I want my router replaced it's under one year you don't want to give me tech support it's not working replace it and amazingly suddenly they were supporting me um, just a little reminder that a lot of people have hardware warranties that exceed the tech support And if a company is not standing by their product, tell them to replace. And a lot of times they realize it's cheaper for them to give you a little bit of tech support than to have to send you out a new unit. Uh, just a little frugality tip there, Jack. Well, it is interesting how a company will say they can't do something and you tell them something that they have to do and all of a sudden the thing that they couldn't do, they now can do and they do it and they fix the problem. That's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting angle and, and one I really hadn't thought of. I, probably because I never had to deal with the situation before, but hopefully that'll help someone out out there. So if you happen to have a, any piece of equipment you're asking for support on and they no longer provide support, you know, quote-unquote, for it, but it's still under warranty, you know what to do now. So a good little frugality tip there. Let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, my question is regarding my garden. I have uh, a lot of wood mulch out there that I put in a few years ago, and I've got a billion roly-poly creatures eating all my baby plants um, when they come up. So is there anything I can do about that? I'm not really sure. I can see them just kind of tearing up the stems as they're young, especially beans and things like that. Uh, so any advice you have on roly-polies and what to do about them, appreciate it. Secondly, uh, another question, if you would, question for Jack would be, I'm currently making some red wines and wanted to know how I could take some oak logs, some small oak logs that I had uh, gathered up and how to incorporate that oak flavor into my red wine. Do I, can I cut it up kind of small? Do I toast it? Um, Do I need to do anything to the wood first? And in what stage of the wine do I put it in and how long do I leave it for? 
I'd appreciate the answer to that. If you would, thank you very much. Appreciate you, Shell. Love everything you do. Thank you. Well, pill bugs are a constant if you're going to mulch your garden. And um, there's something you have to decide. What's more detrimental to your garden, not having mulch or having to deal with pill bugs? And I think in general, most of the time, we're going to determine that we're better off with mulch than, than uh, and some pill bugs than no mulch and, and, and you know not having uh, the effects of mulch. Or no pill bugs, but not having the, the beneficial effects of, of mulch. Now, here's the thing about pill bugs. They're not really that big of a problem, except in the situation you're dealing with, which is as your plants come up and they're young and weak and those stalks are tender, at the same time you have to worry about cutworms hitting your beans and, and your new sprouts. It's the same thing with pill bugs. They like those young uh, plants. So one of the easy things to do, is simply, until your plants are big enough to not really be bothered, use dimitaceous earth. And you don't have to use it all over the place. You can basically get a little dimitaceous uh, earth duster and dust just around the bases of your young plants because you're not trying to grow 80 acres of beans. Uh, it, it's much easier to do some manual hand control. Every time it rains or gets really wet, that DE is going to lose its potency. So even a really humid morning with some dew a couple days in a row will pretty much knock that down. So you're going to have to reapply it. But your plants will probably need about one to two weeks of, of its initial growth to get up to where it's got some substantial uh, woody nature to its stems, and they're just not going to bother with it anymore, and they're going to go back to actually being a beneficial in, in the environment. They're not a beneficial like, let's say, a wasp that's going to be a, a predator or a ladybug or something like that. They're not a beneficial to the level of something like a nematode, but they do serve a purpose. They're part of the ecosystem. You don't want to try to wipe them out. What you want to do is try to control them. Now, on the oak in your wine, Um, there's a lot of different things you can do. Probably the best best way to do it is to purchase oak chips for the purpose of doing this because they'll be made out of a variety of oak and maybe they'll be toasted to a certain way or degree or what you want. Um, but you can do it with your own oak. And you're going to get some oak character uh, with various different oak trees. But there's the different character between, let's say, red oak and white oak. And you, you're probably going to want to rely on... Uh, a white oak variety, but it really either will will do okay for you. Generally, the big difference between oak with beer or wine and, and aging and whiskeys and everything else like that is going to be things like uh, French versus American, with French being a much more subtle and American oaks having a much more harsh uh, con contribution. So they're better for uh, flavoring you know, bigger beers, bigger wines, your heavy reds, your, your IPAs and things like that. And your French oak with a more subtle characteristic would be something more for your, uh, you know, your lighter wines. But there's no hard rule on that. I, for one, love a Chardonnay with a major oak contribution to it. I love that vanilla-ish, toasty flavor of a well-oaked Chardonnay. Some people hate it. So basically you can just do it, and this is the best way to do it. Split your batch in half. If it's a five-gallon batch, make two, two-and-a-half-gallon batches. Oak one and don't oak the other and see if you can taste the difference, find the contributions, so you know exactly what the oak's done. Big thing with oak, being wood, it's porous. And being porous, it has the ability to pull in moisture and take up all kinds of icky, nasty uh, bacteria and things like that that you don't want in your wine, that you don't want in your beer. And if you add that to your fermenter and don't do something about the, that potential uh, uh, malicious uh, 
you know, content of bacteria, uh, you may ruin a perfectly good batch. So what you want to do anytime you use oak chips as part of your aging process is before they go into the fermenter, boil up some hot water, put them in that hot water, give them a good, you know, one to two minutes soak in boiling hot water, and that'll kill off any pathogen that may be in there, and then you can add it to your fermenter. Most people do this in a secondary fermentation. So when you rack off to your secondary would be when you would add them. But I've I've done beers specifically where right at the end of the boil, I just throw a big old handful of oak chips in there. Generally, I don't cut my own oak for this. I get them from a homebrew supply, and you can get them in specific types of things. Now, there's something you need to know about wines and beers aged on oak. Generally, when it's done in a commercial operation, it's not done in a new barrel. It's used in a barrel that was used for something else. So we might take a barrel that was used for bourbon, so for aging Kentucky bourbon, and we might age the beer in there. And it's going to get flavors not just from the oak and not just from the charring of the inside of the barrel, but from the bourbon, uh, the, the things that were left over from the bourbon. Uh, or maybe it's a barrel that had bourbon aged in it. Then the Scots love to take the old bourbon bottles and raise their scotch in it, and, and, and that changes everything. And then maybe that barrel that's been used a th is used a third time. So a lot of these characteristics are far more difficult to produce by using oak, but they can be replicated by using some oak and adding a little bit of a bourbon or adding a little bit of a scotch or whatever to your overall batch of beer. How much is something you kind of have to work out for yourself, but it's not a lot. The reality, though, is a commercial brewery can't do that. It's against the law for them to do that. That's adding bourbon to beer would make it a bourbon product, not a beer product. Uh, even when you buy these things like these wine coolers and stuff like that, uh, a lot of times you'll see them in places where they're not allowed to sell wine and liquor. Well, why? They're a malt beverage Right, So they're not really a liquor. Uh, so you can do things like that. You could brew a, a really uh, heavy stout. And if you wanted to give it some characteristics of being aged in a bourbon barrel, you could actually use charred oak, uh, you know, purchased or from an, a barrel or whatever as part of the, the, fer in the fermentation. But you could also add a little bit of actual bourbon. Uh, now, you don't want to add too much. You don't want to boost your alcohol to a point where you're going to kill off your yeast and not get that secondary bottle fermentation or what have you. But it would take an awful lot to do that anyway. So just an, just an observation and something you can do there. And there's no reason you couldn't take a big red wine and fortify it with a little bit of a, of a really deep, rich bourbon and oak flavor. I've never done it, but uh, I did find an interesting article about it, and uh, it's something that's been passed around the homebrew uh, world for quite a long time. I'll provide a link to that article today. I just want to get your mind going a little bit beyond just throwing some oak chips in there. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Nick from Columbus, Ohio. I'm calling a response here, Becoming a Better Shot with Airsoft Show. First off, I can't thank you enough for putting a positive light on the airsoft community. This is something that we've really needed for a long time. Uh, in addition to that, you mentioned how these are replicas, and I wanted to turn you on to something called the PTW and the PTP series, that being Professional Training Weapon and Professional Training Pistol. These are some of the most accurately replicated airsoft guns on the market. However, they're a little pricey with the PTWs coming in at around a grand and the Professional Training Pistols coming in around 130 to $180. Also, you mentioned the gas guns. Uh, one thing I want to add to that was that gas doesn't work very well in the cold. These gas guns below around 50 degrees don't really work that well. And the last thing you said was the capacity of the magazines. 
You're talking about the high cap mags that hold around 330 rounds. Most of us use what are called mid caps that hold around 100 rounds. So you have to practice mag changes. Uh, and then there's also real caps which hold around 20 to 30 rounds. So you really have to count your rounds and change mags like you would with a real gun. Uh, thanks for everything you do. Bye. Well, great call. Thank you for that. Um, on the, the professional training weapon at about $1,000 for an airsoft gun, um, if that's what you want to do, fine. It's probably going to be a cold day in hell before I spend $1,000 on an airsoft gun of any kind whatsoever, uh, unless I can, uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, rub it and a genie comes out and will give me an AR-15, because for that I could buy a decent AR-15. Um, so I'm probably not going to be investing a thousand bucks in an airsoft gun. In fact, probably is not the right word. I will not be investing ever a thousand dollars in an airsoft gun. And my wife who's in the, uh, office today just smiled, I think, because I'm not going to blow that kind of money on a toy, uh, at least in her view. Anyway, um, you know, the, the professional training pistol at about 150 to 180 bucks, I'd have to see one. Um, but if I can get a 1911 that really functions like my 1911 that way, that's not out of the question at all if there's really a significant upgrade over something like uh, like a WE uh, 1911 that uses either CO2 or green gas, and they come in at about 100 bucks. That $80 premium, if it's really that much better, uh, would probably be you know more than worth it. And I personally found airsoft handguns as a better training aid than airsoft rifles. Uh, maybe that's just my experience, but airsoft has a, a range limitation uh, where it's accurate, and rifles, to, to me, an airsoft handgun generally within handgun ranges is every bit as, as accurate if you shoot it well uh, as, a, as a conventional uh, handgun. Not that the handgun can't exceed that range, but typical ranges we would use a handgun in for defense and, and other things. When we try to go out to rifle ranges, I'm sorry, airsoft can't, can't, can't hang. It just can't. Uh, I guess with maybe these professional training weapons where we're looking at things like small carbines, tactical carbines, things like that, we'll be using close quarters combat. For the people that are professionals training in that environment, they may be awesome. Uh, on the, the magazine capacity, it's interesting that they make reduced capacity magazines for airsoft guns. My view has always been this. If you want realistic training with, let's say, a, a AR-15 clone uh, airsoft gun, and you have 10 magazines, and they hold, each hold 300 rounds, all you have to do is put 30 rounds in each magazine. It doesn't matter how many they actually hold. It only matters how many you put in there. So I don't know that you need to actually physically reduce the capacity of the magazines unless they cost less that way. If they cost less that way, uh, then it would make sense to buy them. But I would say with your training with airsoft, if you want to get realistic, with the magazines, buy the most inexpensive, highly functional magazine for your airsoft gun, and then load it to capacity that represents the actual capacity of the real-world variant of that weapon. That's just what makes sense to me, but great call, and I really like doing that show on airsoft. I did another one uh, several years ago that was done a little bit differently. You might want to look that one up, uh, but I'll definitely do shows on airsoft in the future. I've heard from quite a few professional uh, firearms trainers, including Frank Sharp, since I did that show that says we do, in fact, use airsoft, and in many of the ways that you suggested, and many of these trainers have also said some of the things you've suggested maybe we should start doing. So I think we're going to start seeing more and more training with airsoft guns because it allows 
allows for more realistic training and it still maintains a margin of safety that just can't be had with a live round or with simunitions. Like there's these guns that are out there that, you know, it's, it's your, it's your duty piece if you're an officer, but you can run simunitions through them. And there's just a potential for a mistake there that I'm not comfortable with. Frank says he's not comfortable with either. Anyway, great call. Thanks for that. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Todd in Utah. Hey, I really liked your podcast uh, involving uh, home brewing tips and tricks. Uh, my question is, is uh, has anybody thought of using the, uh, the process of making alcohol uh, to make uh, pure grain alcohol to run uh, tractors and cars uh, in the, uh, uh, when the crap hits the fan uh, or when fuel supplies are just too expensive uh, to operate? Uh, I'd love to hear uh, anybody's uh, comments on that uh, and the possibilities of uh, uh, doing that on, on a homestead. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Well, that's basically what ethanol is. In fact, the same ethanol you put in your cars before they put certain additives in it that make it unfit to drink is basically moonshine. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's pure alcohol uh, made from a grain or any other starchy producing plant. So it's been done, people continue to do it, and anybody that wants to can with certain restrictions because it involves um, distilling. You cannot make alcohol that would be suited for doing uh, something like running a, a motor or even putting in a lamp and burning a flame with unless you distill it. And that, that comes under a completely different set of guidelines than things like making homemade wine or homemade beer. Um, it, you know, and if done in large quantities and done for resale, it puts you into the realm of being a moonshiner. But it, the process works, and there's no reason it can't continue to work. On this subject as a whole, I've been pretty critical of the ethanol industry. I think that there is a lot wrong with it. Uh, but there's a book out and, and a movement out called Alcohol Can Be a Gas. And it's, it, it's interesting. And it's, it's been recommended that I read the book. And uh, it's put out by a guy named David Bloom. And what I'm going to do, and there's going to be some climate change nonsense in here, just briefly mentioned. And I'm going to let that go today because I think that, that solving this problem of oil dependency has absolutely nothing to do with climate change for me. And I just think that there, we're wasting so much time and energy when we talk about stupid crap like this, but not being dependent on foreign nations for oil and having a renewable source of energy, I'm all for if the problems can be averted. So rather than me giving you my opinion, let me bring David Bloom on, a little interview of his, and I'll let it play, and I'll give you a few more thoughts about it, and then we'll move on from there. This is Wayne Garcia. Welcome to this KPTV.com web interview. Today we're going to be talking about alternative fuels with a man who is kind of described as an inventor, a researcher, and now an author. He's just written a book called Alcohol Can Be a Gas. And uh, David Bloom joins me uh, today. Why do we need to even investigate using alcohol as a fuel for vehicles? Well, there's multiple reasons. First of all, when it comes to air pollution, alcohol is 98% pollution-free compared to gasoline. And when it comes to climate change, alcohol, because it's made from plants, takes carbon dioxide out of the air instead of adding carbon dioxide to our atmosphere. And, of course, oil is running out. And what we replace oil with has a big effect on what's going to happen to our economy and our environment. A lot of people think that this book gives them hope that we can survive a catastrophic uh, you know, problem with getting gas and oil into this country. We've been sold a bill of goods about uh, where we have to get our energy Oil has been very useful for the last hundred years, but it's got a lot of problems. It's toxic, it causes climate change, and it runs out because it only happened once in the history of the planet. But alcohol is made from solar energy, and we have more than enough land to produce what we need, and we can produce it forever. And it's inexpensive. 
The amount of money we've already spent in uh, our adventure in Iraq would be enough money to build enough alcohol plants to fuel every person in the world permanently. You know, one of the great things about alcohol is it's very decentralized. It's made from solar energy. Plants take carbon dioxide, water, and sunlight and make the starches and sugars we make into alcohol. So until the oil companies can control the sun, we're, all, we're actually okay in terms of alcohol being controlled because any farmer can produce the fuel, sell it to a neighborhood station that people set up themselves, like we're currently doing in Santa Cruz, and cut the oil companies completely out of the system. People in the olden days when there weren't gas stations every 50 miles would go out in the country and there would actually be farmers that would be selling fuel, is that right? Virtually every farm produced alcohol. Not only was it important for things like engines, but uh, until we had electricity over the whole country, most people lit their homes using alcohol and turpentine to have light after dark. And so alcohol was a very common uh, material in every farm in the United States. I don't like to use the word waste because, you know, for me, anything that might be considered waste is really just a surplus we have to find a purpose for. Okay. And in alcohol, everything that comes out of the process is edible and non-toxic. So when we make alcohol from corn, for instance, we only use the starch. The protein and fat is all wonderful byproduct that we then use as animal feed and actually is better than the original corn in terms of weight gain for cows than the corn itself. Um, corn, to, you know, the starch in corn really is kind of indigestible by, by animals. So the byproducts actually are worth more than the alcohol. The alcohol is very inexpensive compared to some of the great stuff we get out of the byproducts. Haven't we heard that we can't grow enough corn to make enough alcohol to make a dent in the amount of fuel that we use as Americans? Can you only make alcohol out of corn, or, or how do you address that? Well, alcohol can be made out of many things, and corn is actually a fairly mediocre energy crop. We're using it today because we have a big surplus of corn. But if we start looking at alcohol as the main event versus animal feed, which is what corn's grown for, many crops produce many times the yield per acre of corn. And we have far more land than we need to produce not only all the alcohol for our vehicles, that even could replace a lot of what we use to uh, generate electricity. Brazil imports no oil whatsoever. And they are the fifth biggest country in the world. So this is not some small example. And the way they did that was to replace most of their transportation fuel with alcohol that they make from sugarcane on less than 2% of their agricultural land. So we can actually follow Brazil's example and produce our fuel on a small fraction of our acreage and make ourselves energy independent. The car you currently have started off as an alcohol vehicle, and now they run it on gasoline. The first cars all ran on alcohol, and gasoline came along later. Converting your current car back to alcohol will cost less than $300 and can be set up to, with the flip of a switch, go between the two fuels, as is done in Brazil today. Well, there's an awful lot of misinformation out there where people think there's something wrong with the fuel, etc. And I think as the truth becomes clearer and clearer, as we see examples like Brazil or Sweden that just instituted a national alcohol program or uh, places like India that are going there in a big way, we're going to start to see that we're falling behind instead of leading an alternative energy, and I think we need to get there. Now, what's going to change, or what's, uh, because gasoline has gotten ex expensive, is now small-scale production can go into effect where average people can go into this kind of business and make a good profit, where in the past you had to have a giant plant to make money, now even producing 50 or 100,000 gallons a year, something you could do in something the size of your backyard, you know, would actually allow you to fuel 20 or 30 of your neighbors and make a middle-class living. And really what it takes is people to decide that they no longer want to give their money to uh, companies that don't necessarily have the consumer's best interest in mind, 
and to support a fuel that doesn't require war to go get it from some other country. We can go ahead and do this right now. And in the Midwest, we already have 1,200 stations selling alcohol at the pump. Well, a couple rebuttals on that, because, you know, it's a guy trying to promote his idea, and, and people always get a little bit slanted. Again, the climate change nonsense and this, will the plants take carbon out of the air, and then, uh, you know, ugh. well, it's, it's still released when it's burned. And I want you to think about this. Every single drop of oil we burn represents carbon that was taken out of the atmosphere in the past. It's, it's, it's a timeline is the only thing that's different. Um, that said, the 98% pollution, pollution free, when you drive your car down the road and you burn gasoline and all of the products that come out of oil and the production of gasoline, there's a tremendous amount of pollution from oil. Let me say that again. There's a tremendous amount of pollution from oil. I think we need to stop focusing on the carbon that comes out of oil and focus on the actual pollution. So this solves that problem. So even though this gentleman and I disagree, we agree that this solution is good for all. So I have no problem with ethanol if certain things can be um, fixed. Let me put up a couple objections here. One, $300 will convert your car to run on alcohol again. No, it won't. No, it won't. No, it won't. It burns the shit out of your seals. You, you really, if you have a newer vehicle, it's a little easier to deal with, but I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that the, for the, the modern internal combustion engine, once the switch was made, and he's right, Henry Ford built cars initially to run alcohol, but once the switch was made, things were built based on petroleum-based fuels. And there's a lot of seals, a lot of lines, a lot of problems. And some of the older classic cars that are out there, uh, ethanol, when it, we go to uh, you know uh, higher levels of it, is going to kill them. They're not going to be able to run. They're going to have to be able to find some other source of fuel. So it's not as simple as this guy's making it sound. It's also the case that every time we turn an acre of any crop into alcohol for fuel, it's an acre that could have been food. And we have a food shortage problem on our hands. So here's how this works. To make this work, we stop relying on corn for it. Corn is a terrible uh, product for it. I agree with the gentleman here. Corn makes good alcohol to drink. All right? It's a quality alcohol for human consumption. That's how we get bourbon and Tennessee whiskey and sour mash and, and all that great stuff. So it's, it's good for human consumption. If we're going to burn it, we don't need it to be good for human consumption. I think there's a lot of land out there that could be ecologically managed to produce crops that would produce good alcohol yields for us. Now, Brazil does this. Okay, well, fine. Brazil lives in a place where they can grow the hell out of sugarcane. Sugarcane is an extensively good crop to make alcohol out of because I'm not converting starch to sugar and then converting sugar to alcohol. I'm taking sugar and going straight to alcohol. So some of the types of things we can look at are sugar beets. Now, here's my problem with this, though. All of this stuff about all these byproducts, we can feed them to animals and all, what's that bring us to? GMO, herbicides, stuff like that. So to make this work, we have to start farming more ecologically friendly because all the, see, and this is why I get on the, car, the climate change carbon crap all the time. Every time we make carbon the villain and focus only on the carbon, all the other actual pollution things get left to the side. So now we're going to keep spraying our, our, our herbicides, and we're going to keep growing Roundup-ready corn, and we're going to take the stuff that we extract from the corn without the starch and feed that to the cow that shouldn't be eating the freaking corn in the first place because it should be living on grass. And all of the actual problems in the environment stay, and all we get is oil independence. I think we can do better than that. I also want to bring something up today about climate. I said I wasn't going to go off on it. I'm not. But I just want to put out a thought for you. 
People like me are called what? Climate change deniers. That was when, when you can't debate facts anymore, you just call them a denier, equate them with somebody that denied the Holocaust of the Jews, which is stupid and ignorant. But I want to tell you the truth today. There is a group of people out there that are climate change deniers. They're the ones that believe in man-made global warming and climate disruption and all this other crap, and I'll tell you why. I don't deny climate change. I accept climate change. I believe climate change is real. I expect the climate to change. I expect it to get warmer and colder. I look at the historical record that predates human activity, and I see a climate that's always changed. The people that expect the climate of today to remain constant, for it not to get warmer, for it not to get colder, and at any time it gets warmer or colder for any length of time, say, people did it, you're the denier. You're the one denying that the climate changes all by itself. That's just my thoughts on that. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. Brian from New Jersey. I just got a question for you. I got a bug out location uh, up in New Hampshire, but I'm running into a problem with tick infestation. So my question is, do you have any special methods for controlling ticks on your person and especially in the yard area of the, uh, the bug out location? Um, Maybe if you could go over the clothing, maybe any special clothing or sprays. I was looking at the Sawyer spray in the deep woods off, and uh, more importantly, the yard sprays and cutting back the foliage. Any methods you have. Okay, Thanks let's uh, take a time trip back Hope to, to uh, 1991, 1992 when I was in uh, Honduras. Uh, when we got to that place, it was literally infested with ticks. You had to check your buddy. We looked like Reese's monkeys every day, checking each other out, pulling ticks off of each other. First thing we did was get a whole bunch of Honduran men together with their machetes. They worked for a dollar an hour. We pulled our money together so we didn't have to do it. And for about $500, we had the place cut back and, and mowed with machetes because there wasn't a lawnmower or anything like that out there. And it wasn't the kind of terrain you could do it anyway. And the tick problem wasn't gone, but it was much better instantly. So cutting back your underbrush, your your low-growing brush, uh, will do immense things. And you can even leave it. We had it hauled off because you know we weren't worried about permaculture. We were about setting up a base of operations. But uh, you can even use it as mulch, and you're going to have a hell of a lot less. In fact, I would because it will improve the soil, and you're going to have a whole lot less ticks hiding. They like that grass. It's high. They can climb up, and they can wait for something to come by. It's not just that they're there. It makes... Anything passing by accessible, so that's one thing. If you have areas of very, very high infestation, you can treat those areas with DE. Uh, one or two treatments will put a real good hit on the population. Uh, as far as clothing, if you look at military personnel, you'll always see that they have their trousers tucked into the top of their boots. Uh, that's not just because it looks good or because somebody decided sometime that was the way to do things. It prevents a lot of things from going up your pant leg and getting into your leg. Now it's something that gets on my pant leg has to get all the way up to my waistband before it can get into my body and access me. So that's one thing you can do is it's, it's called blousing your, blousing your trousers and blousing your boots. Um, that not something that a lot of people want to do, but when you're working in the yard, yard for a particular period of time, it's one step that you can take. Wearing a long sleeve light shirt, something that wicks stuff away from you, even in a hot environment, you're often more comfortable with long sleeves, believe it or not. Uh, so that type 
emulating military dress, especially military dress for jungle operations, lightweight outer garments, uh, wearing a t-shirt underneath, creating multiple layers that have to be penetrated to keep them off you while you're dealing with the, the critical acute portion of the situation. Uh, very good natural control for ticks, guinea hens. Uh, chickens will eat them, a lot of different birds will eat them, but the guinea hen is like a tick-destroying machine. So you might want to consider adding some guineas there. Now, if it's a bug-out location, you're not there. Guineas are pretty self-sufficient, but they're going to need some level of care. But if you have a neighbor or you get there often enough to provide care, give them housing, predatory protection, give them a, 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 a house that they can go into with a door that will close automatically, make sure they have fresh water available at all times. A few guinea hens will do a lot to control the total insect population on your home and uh, your or your bug-out location. They're about as self-sufficient as it gets. So that's the best I can do for you. Things like off and things like that do work to some level, but ticks are really big on what they're looking for is heat. Uh, they're looking for your body heat. That's what attracts them, and they'll they'll deal with insect repellent uh, and tolerate it more than things like mosquitoes, even though mosquitoes are really using the same thing to attract. They have an absolute need to feed uh, on a warm-blooded creature, so there'll be a limited effect. As far as spraying, I'm not big on spraying just about anything. Uh, I believe that it does so much more harm than good. But if you told me I have a complete tick infestation and I want to use some type of a, a relatively uh, reasonable pesticide and I want to knock that back and then use you know natural control from there, I certainly wouldn't put you in the category of people I hate. I would understand it. It's just not what I would do personally. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. How's it going? Um, I was looking at Bloom, Bloomberg News here, um, and it says, Investors may lose as Congress saves money on advisor oversight. Uh, basically, what these guys are going to do is they're going to give up their, uh, they're going to try and take the Security and Exchange Commission's responsibility for regulating the uh, investment advisors, advisors industry and turn it over to the investment advisors. So, uh, yeah, I, I know it's crazy, but it's what they're going to do, and I hope that people look up the story and take a look at it because it's like, you know, they talk about the fox in the hen house. Why even have a hen house, right? But uh, anyway, so my question is, is this like a last-ditch effort to stimulate the economy by Congress? You know, they're going to let these guys regulate themselves and hope they can whip up a next another bubble uh, like the housing bubble and whatnot. Um, anyway, I was wondering what you thought about that. Uh, thank you for your consideration, and have a good day. Bye. Well, there's a really good article on Bloomberg out about this, and I'll put a link to it today so people can learn more. But it's exactly what you said it is. It's the, it's the government who is supposed to be managing the hen house saying to the foxes, hey, why don't you take care of it for us? Is it a plan to stimulate the economy? Maybe, because if you let these clowns have their way, they can create false uh, senses of security, and they can drive things up, and they can make you know uh, an artificial bubble uh, here and there, and, and they may very well do it. But I don't think that's the, the real driving force here. The government's going broke, and it's looking for places to cut, cut costs. 
So if you have this private organization that's already funded by the people that are in the organization, well, then you can just say, you know what, if the SEC doesn't have to do this, we can cut this much expense out of the SEC's operation, and we can go back to the people and say, look, we cut your budget. Isn't that great? It is probably one of the places the government actually should be doing what it's, what it's doing. Um, if you look at the article, you'll see that this self-regulated organization uh, issued fines last year of about $43 million. So they did do their job. They went out and said, you're doing the wrong thing. Pay a fine, $43 million. But the SEC issued more than a billion. So who's more likely to do something? Let me put it to you this way. I can make it look, if I'm this group, like I'm doing my job. I can go... Bad Bernie Madoff, pay $5 million, right? And, well, he made $50 million, so do you think he really cares if I take five of it back? And, but a lot of this goes on in the government anyway. Um, but that's what I really think it is. I'll put the article out there for people to read it themselves. Here's the big thing I want to point out. All while we're hearing about how it's all about the rich guys and Obama wants to tax the rich and the evil oil companies and the corporate jet owners, if this crap was going on under George Bush, what's that, Huffington, uh, Huffington Post would be all over this. But nobody's even talking about it. It gets a little bit of mention. This is the same crap that people talk about bigwig Republicans doing that, that going on under the Obama administration and the Democrats still controlling the Senate. They're going to rubber stamp this crap and push it through. And they're going to call it a cost-cutting measure. This is the big thing I want you to understand. Your government is selling you out to Wall Street no matter what they're saying to your face. And it doesn't matter if the D or the R is in charge. It doesn't matter one damn bit. Things like this have been going on uh, from the beginning of the Obama administration. Uh, back when they were talking about how the uh, the oil companies were evil and they were going to do this stuff to them. And at the same time, they're cutting backdoor deals with them to give them tax breaks that now they say they want to take. I mean, it's just, it's just nonsense. It's just another example of the same crap over and over and over again. This is an issue. It does set the stage eventually um, for a really big mess in the future, something like we saw with the housing bubble and everything. But let me tell you what's going to happen. This is, a, this is a typical pile of crap. What they do is they create this environment that allows the abuse, and then when everything falls apart, they blame the people, uh, that, that, and they say we need more government oversight, even though they're the ones that gave it up in the first place. And in every instance where we've seen the government stand up and say, we need more oversight, we need more control, They first took the control they had, gave it away to their buddies, let their buddies profit, and then they stand back like the good cop, bad cop pile of crap, and they're both in it together, and that's that's what this really is. Uh, will it create a bubble? I don't know if there's much of a bubble left to be created right now. They've screwed things up so badly, as we heard earlier from Meredith, um, but... Uh, Let's just uh, let's just let that one be what it is for now. You can look it up yourself. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Corey. I've uh, been out of the loop for a while. I was recently deployed to Iraq and got back about a month and a half ago and was uh, catching up on one of your podcasts. Just heard this number, so I thought I'd give you a call and let you know about a great website, MotherEarthNews.com. I uh, saw their magazine in uh, Fred Myers or something like that a few weeks ago and uh, picked it up, went to their website, and they have a great little area there. Uh, there's a link on the top nav bar called Land for Sale. And for anybody looking for a bug out location, they have uh, more listings than uh, any other website I've seen for prime homesteading and bug out location type land. So thanks very much for the show. Later. First and foremost, thank you for your service to your nation and to the people of your nation. I appreciate you for that. 
uh, and welcome home. Uh, second of all, on the resource, I, I just looked at it for the first time. Man, there is a ton of land advertised for sale on Mother Earth News. So that's I'll put a link to that direct section today so you can take a look at it. And uh, I, I want to point out one thing with most real estate sites that kind of pisses me off. It just really does. And I wish people that were running real estate sites would fix this. Um, generally speaking, when you're looking to buy land, you're looking to try to buy land you can afford. So one of the ways you might sort uh, the listings is lowest to highest. And um, generally what you'll find is like a whole bunch of property with no price, so it's a zero, so it goes first. And that's not what you're looking for at all. And then you'll see ass clowns that cheat the system by putting in, you know, uh, the price per acre of like $400 an acre. But it's a 500-acre parcel, and they won't subdivide it into individual acres. I'd like to see real estate-type websites that show royal land and things put a, a system in place where that kind of crap could just be sorted out and won't be seen, where people can say, do not show me property listed at the individual acre price, do not show me property without a price. Sort from low to high. So people would stop doing that. And, and people are listing land that way. You're a freaking idiot. If I'm looking for the lowest cost land that's available in a listing, and you're selling $13 million worth of property, but you're selling it at $500 an acre, I can't afford what you're selling. Don't do that crap. Just because I look at it doesn't mean I'm going to buy it. So a little mini rant there, but it is a great resource, and if you skip ahead two or three pages, you get past the ass clowns doing that. Um, the next thing I want to point out, though, is... I've always been a reader of Mother Earth News. Every time I've never been really a subscriber. I don't know if something bugs me about the publication overall. I prefer to see if there's an issue out and if it's new and I look at it and I like to cover in the stories. I'll go ahead and buy a copy of it. But Mother Earth News has been kind of a thorn in my side because they provide great information. But every freaking article I read in there and every editor's comment is lecturing me on freaking climate change. You know what? Shut up and tell me how to grow food. And that's how, and I know there's a lot of people out there that have been kind of feeling the same way about Mother Earth News. Too much eugenics crap in it. Too much about, you know, the world's population and all this other crap. Let's just stick to the concept of You know, agriculture. I gotta tell you though, I felt the other way when I first found it because with the title Mother Earth News, I expected it to be a hundred percent that, and it's not. But I would like more content in a magazine. I would like more of what I can do, how to do it, what to do, than I generally get from a lot of the political speak, a lot of the fluff, and a lot of the advertising in Mother Earth News. So as I tracked her supply about a week ago, maybe no, I'd say probably a month ago now, and, uh, I found this magazine called Countryside and Small Stock Journal, and lo and behold, Paul Wheaton had an article in it, so I knew it must be pretty daggone good. And I read it, and I read it cover to cover, and I really kind of tossed it to the side. And uh, then I was at another tractor supply and found another issue of it, and I bought it. And they were so close together, and I really didn't pay attention to the title that I was like, I found another great magazine. And I'm reading it, and I'm going, this has a very familiar feel to us. I went and found the old cop. turned out they were both the same magazine. I just must have hit them a week apart where they switched from, you know, the one issue to the next. I can't recommend this magazine highly enough. I'd like you to check out their website. They're not a sponsor. I don't have any kind of agreement with them or anything like that. But uh, they're out six times a year, I guess, kind of like Mother Earth News is. They've been around apparently a long time. But I found that this magazine have much more what, 
how uh, type stuff, and a lot more what I would see is reader-contributed content, less of a, of a staff journalist type of approach and more of people that are out there actually doing it, saying, this is what I'm doing, here's how we're like. Somebody went out and took like people that would generally post in forums like Paul Wheaton or on blogs like, like you know other folks that are out there and then put that together in a more concrete, organized format. So I really like that one and wanted to use this as an opportunity uh, to mention it again, sir. Thank you for your service. Let's take one more call and we'll wrap up for today. Hey, Jack, this is Bobo on the forums uh, from Midland, Texas. As I was sitting here rotating my gas today, putting some gas in, the old stuff in, and uh, refilling with some new stuff, I got to thinking about alternative uh, fuels uh, for uh, the vehicle for uh, sort of that um, uh, redundancy. And uh, I was looking online, and apparently the Honda CRV has a, a natural gas uh, option where you can comes with a compressor you put in your house, and uh, basically you refuel your car with the natural gas from your lines. Uh, as an alternative energy source to, say, polar pairs, I'm not for that. But I'm, uh, what I like about that option is that you have something other than gasoline or diesel to have transportation fuel. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. I, I haven't invested anything in it, but just kind of toying with the idea. Thanks for the show. Actually, I just first heard about this car uh, while I was down in Dallas uh, with my wife. And uh, we were down there, and we were over the weekend. We were in the car on a Sunday. And I was listening to Wheels with Ed Wallace, and somebody called and asked about this car. And it seems interesting. And let me give you the, the full lowdown on kind of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly with this car. Uh, again, the, the car is the, uh, is the Honda Civic uh, GX, and it, it allows it to use natural gas. Generally, the consensus is it costs about $4,500 more for a GX than the normal Civic comparably equipped. But I can tell you on their website, for instance, that a, uh, a Civic GS has a starting price of about $25,000, and you can get kind of a stripped-down Civic for about $15,000. So you may be looking at anywhere in the neighborhood of almost $10,000 of a premium on this car, Uh, the GX comes with certain options built in that would raise the base price, so that's where they come up with the $4,500 to five grand uh, difference. So you're going to pay $5,000 more for this car. A Civic uh, base mileage is going to get 28 miles city, 39 miles highway, so buying a gas Civic is going to get you tremendous mileage to begin with. So, again, this is going to be a tough sell on the price premium at this point in time And it's a, a concept of can we make these things a little bit more uh, or at a little bit less of a premium to make people buy them? Because here's the problem with the, the, the natural gas powered vehicle. Unless you have natural gas in your home and you buy this special appliance made by a Canadian company called Phil, and it's P-H-I-L-L is the name of this appliance, then you have to fuel up at a place where you can get natural gas. Let's say you're taking a nice long road trip. You're driving from, uh, I don't know, Dallas, Texas to, uh, like I did recently, Sanibel, Florida. There's a lot of stops in between that you need to fill up at. And being able to find natural gas availability right now, not so much. So... For the city commuter that's driving the same route every day, uh, it is it is more affordable than gasoline. Uh, it is lower pollution than gasoline, so it's definitely something uh, to be considered. But again, this is something like the infrastructure needs to build, be built out. Now, here's the exciting part: there's this new appliance called Phil. Again, it's made by a Canadian company, but it's going to cost you about $3,500. bucks. So now I'm going to add to the $5,000 premium on the vehicle, and there's only one vehicle that's really doing this yet that's available in any quantity. 
and I've got to buy this fill thing for another $3,500. So now I'm somewhere between five and and $9,000 of a premium on the vehicle. People do it all the time for diesel vehicles, don't they? And here's the cool thing. You set up fill in your house. You pull your car up into your garage. You plug fill in, and fill is plugged into your existing natural gas like you heat your house with or heat your water with. And overnight, fill fills your car for you. So you get up in the morning and your car's full. Now, if your car's empty, it will take overnight. See, natural gas to be used in a car is to be compressed. And the natural gas in your home is not compressed. So fill both compresses and fuels the car. But if you drive 50 miles a day, you're nowhere near empty. And every time you pull in, if you hook up, your vehicle will stay full all the time. And then you're paying the natural gas company for the natural gas instead of the natural gas fueling company. And now you're going to cut your cost of fuel consumption in half. And you're avoiding lots of nasty taxes. So... There's good and bad and ugly here, and it's it's a technology that's going to take time. Now, here's the good news: if we do this, uh, it's better than it's to me. It's much more ecologically friendly than alcohol as a gas, which we talked about earlier. Because I don't have to use food to produce fuel; I can use food to produce food. Uh, and there's there there there's no doubt that we're going to have issues with that in the future. So unless we start turning fallow land into fertile land for the production of alcohol with smarter crop choices and smarter ecological choices, the alcohol solution actually is an environmental disaster uh, waiting to happen. I know the guy behind the movement wants it done right, but my point is that the the society has seldom done things the way the visionary uh, has laid out for them. So I'm not putting down uh, that guy at all. I'm uh, just saying that you know this is an issue here. When we burn natural gas, it actually is a very 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 clean burning fuel, uh, and we are sitting on ma- massive massive amounts of natural gas. There, I do have some ecologically uh, ecological concerns with the way it's being harvested, but we can do a better job on that. And, and it's it's relatively easy to tighten up some of the things that we're doing. The hydraulic fracturing is causing some real problems and some concerns with even causing earthquakes. I don't know if that's maybe being oversold a little bit right now. But natural gas has a lot going for it. And if we can run on natural gas, we could also run on biogas. That's an interesting thing because if we start running on biogas, we're using waste. So we're using all the things that we would normally use anyway, and instead of putting that waste into a landfill, we're using it to produce gas. And the other offshoot, when we make natural gas from waste and we use biogas, the other uh, output is is fertilizer. So if we take leftover food, leftover garbage, and make methane from it, the other output is is, is fertilizer and compost. So I think that all of these technologies working together can take us forward. But if you ask me, Jack, would you, as a modern survivalist, purchase a natural gas-powered vehicle today, even with fill, uh, to fill it up for you using the pipeline that comes to my home? No. The structure is not in place yet, but it is innovative, it is pioneering, and it may be part of the way forward. We'll have to wait and see. With that, I hope today's show has been kind of different. I've tried to bring a bunch of stuff in today, let you hear from people other than me, let you hear from people with conflicting views, bring a little bit of humor in. Rodney Dangerfield was one of my all-time favorite comedians of the past. And uh, just set your Friday off with a little bit of a different tone. Yes, there's things to be concerned about, but yes, there's also things to be you know, optimistic about. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today. 